0: Product Breakfast Club, oh ho 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 ho, oh, it's a little bit weird to sing this um, without Jake. Hey, welcome to the Product Breakfast Club podcast. My name is Jonathan Courtney. I'm your host for today, and this is going to be a special lonely cast without my normal co-host, Jake, because Jake is now traveling around Europe, making his slow and steady way towards a workshop that we're going to be running next week here in Berlin, but I didn't want to reduce the pace of the podcast coming out just because of a little bit of travel. So I'm going to be doing a lonely cast here for you today. If you're new to the Product Breakfast Club podcast, I guess the concept behind it is that it's two designers, designers who've worked on many, many projects for many different types of companies and organizations, talking about different topics like product strategy, innovation, process, all that kind of stuff. But... At the same time, it's a very rambly show. It's kind of something, you know, that it doesn't take itself too seriously. And it's something you can put on in the background and not worry too much. You just get subliminally smarter while you listen to it. Or dumber, I don't know. Maybe it's dumber. But we're super happy to see how many people are listening to it. And we're really loving the feedback. So keep that coming. And really, all of your reviews in the App Store They genuinely help the app get noticed. So if you haven't reviewed the podcast yet, which I I never really review podcasts, but maybe just pause this, go on over to the podcast app on your iPhone. Unfortunately, this only works with an Apple product and give it a five-star review. Thank you so much. Great. Okay, I saw all those five-star reviews popping up. That is not true. Okay, so yeah, like next week, as I mentioned, Jake's going to be here. We're going to be running a two-day boot camp in Berlin. For about 50 people. Tickets went on sale about two months ago. They sold out about a month ago, which we were super happy about and also surprised about. So that's going to be a great two days. If you're listening to this podcast, then you'll already have potentially heard that we're going to be recording a live product breakfast club in Berlin. It's next week when I'm recording this, but it will be last week when you hear it. So yeah, we're going to be at least attempting to record a live product breakfast club from Berlin. Just kind of having like an invite to people who are on the AJ and Smart newsletter. That should be quite fun or a total disaster. You'll find out. You'll probably already know (laughs) by the time you're listening to this. It's also World Cup season. So I know that most of our listeners are from the US, but um, we still have quite a few. Oh, there's a fly. Get away from me, fly. Hey, come here. Come here, you little. If you hear a fly getting extremely close to the microphone, I can do nothing about it. So yeah, it's World Cup season for all you Europeans out there. It's a lovely time in Berlin. Every street corner has screen set up. People are sitting outside drinking in the sun, getting their tan on. If you're living in Berlin and listening to this, there's a place called Taucher in Friedrichshain. And man, you can just like sit in the swimming pool, drinking cocktails, watching the football game. It's extremely luxurious and not very expensive. So yeah, World Cup season, summer. Jake events coming up so much happening. I'm also going to be traveling a lot over the next few months between the US and Germany. So a lot of work has come up in San Francisco. Super excited to talk about that as soon as I'm allowed to talk about it. But let's just say you know all the companies, you will have heard of the companies that I'm going to be doing some work with. So extremely excited and nervous and stressed about trying to organize that nightmare of travel. It's gonna be like San Francisco, New York, Portland, San Jose, LA, I don't even know. It's a lot of travel. It's a lot to plan as well, moving a lot of people from AJ and Smart from place to place, so (laughs) So this episode, I thought I would go into how, just to give you a tiny bit of context, AJ and Smart, the company that I run and founded, one of the most common requests we get these days is to help companies to scale the design sprint throughout their organization. So usually, a lot of the companies, they call us when maybe somebody in the company is totally bought into the idea of the design sprint. They love it, but they're like, okay, but how do we make sure that this doesn't become one of those things that companies just kind of give up after a while. Sometimes that is design thinking initiatives. They end up getting kind of abandoned or forgotten and people call us to help them figure out how can they avoid that and how can they scale up the design sprint process. So that's something that super common question as well from whenever we do like a Q&A. And I thought I would just tell you how we do that at AJ and Smart, how we go into a large organization, and help them to go crazy and scale up the design sprint. It doesn't matter whether the company has 50 people or 320,000 people, like one of the companies I spoke to this week. This is pretty much the same procedure that we go through. It's a little bit custom. So yeah, it's pretty much the same procedure for large companies as it is for medium-sized companies, but there's always some sort of custom way to do it. So what I'm going to explain to you today as a listener of the Product Breakfast Club is how we at AJ and Smart help companies scale the design sprint throughout their organization. I guess I'm just going to try to explain it as much as possible. And I'm also sitting here with a beer, so forgive the sipping every so often. But you know what? There ain't no Squarespace ad at the start of this podcast. There's no ads at all. So for now, we can just kind of do what we want. It's good. It's very nice. Ah. So, you might remember a couple of episodes back, I had Ike from Lego on the podcast, and he spoke about how they scale design sprints throughout their organization. After this episode, if you haven't heard that episode, I would recommend going back to it. So, you'll see it. It's the one that has like Lego in the title. And that definitely goes into a very specific case study. But today, I'm going to give you something a bit more general. So, when a client calls us up, let's do like a little role play. Pr-pr-pr- Hi, um, this is James from BigBank.com. And I'm really interested in the design sprint process. We've tried a few different processes before creating innovative products and working faster and getting teams working a little bit better together and killing some of the bad defaults that have built up over time. And yeah, somehow I found and smart and I heard that you guys kind of do some design sprinty stuff. Anyway, tell me how... You can help me scale design sprints through our organization so that maybe a year from now, most of the organization understands what the sprint is and are able to use it as a tool when they need it. And I'm like, hey, James. Hey, man, how are you doing? So here's what I would recommend. We don't want to take the approach of this top-down sort of innovation, change, digital transformation, like we try to just push it on the entire company all at once it's too much. It's too big an ask for an organization to completely change how they work like that. So, what we're going to do, what I'm going to recommend is that we start off, first of all, with a relatively small team of about 20 people, maybe mix them up from different departments, just get the people who need a bit of convincing that this is a good idea, get them all in a room, and we're going to run a two day boot camp. And in this boot camp, they're going to learn why the design sprint is useful. They're going to see some case studies of how the design sprint has worked. They're also going to actually take part in a mini design sprint and work on a couple of the problems that they have within their organization right now. And preferably, if you can get some high up people in the room for this, it would be great because they're the people who need convincing. So get the sponsors in the room, get some VPs in the room. If you can get anybody from the C-suite in the room, that would be obviously amazing. So let's first do that. Let's first get 20 people And let's actually try to just plant the seed, get people excited. And these 20 people are going to be somehow influential in the organization. Also, these are the people who might need to give their buy-in if we're to do anything else, right? So the first thing we do, and now I'm not in the call anymore. This is Jonathan again, talking to you, the podcast listeners. So the first thing we do is we recommend, let's just get the people into the room. Let's just do a little workshop. Let's just show them what the design sprint is about and the benefits of it. give them a feel for it, right? Let's not try to do any giant package up front. Let's not try to like train the entire organization. That's just like, it's great for us. It gives us a lot of money, but it doesn't really help your organization, right? So let's just do something small. Let's kickstart it. Okay, back to me talking to James. All right, James. So let's set that up. Let's do that little workshop. Now, once the workshop is finished, what we want to do is take a team of people who is involved in that workshop, even if it's not everyone. Maybe there was like one or two people in that workshop and maybe it's a business owner from the accounting department. And she is really excited about the design sprint now. And she's been trying to get this product off the ground for quite a while. She has this idea for a new digital venture that they could try out but it's just been going in circles forever and ever. Now she's taken part in this design sprint training and she feels empowered. She wants to run a design sprint. Maybe, and this is often the case, maybe multiple people within that workshop want to now do design sprints. Now, James, you and I are going to work together to choose the best first project to work on. And we're going to call this the lighthouse project. This first Lighthouse project, this is going to be something that looks good for the team when it works out well, and it also looks good for the company. So we want to make something that's really, really impressive, something that will make other teams jealous that this was something that we were able to make so quickly at such a high quality and with so little stress. So we want to do one design sprint and one iteration sprint on an idea that's been difficult to get off the ground within the company. And when it's finished, when this is finished, we want to present it back to the people who are in that first workshop. Okay, so what happens then after the two weeks, or maybe it's three weeks if we have to do a bit more extensive prep with the stakeholders. So we do a design sprint on a topic, on a product, on a service, on whatever, something that's been really going around in circles, something that's maybe a... Big opportunity for the company, but it's something they just maybe didn't know how to get off the ground. So we work with them on that for two weeks. Usually at the end of the two weeks, they have this high fidelity prototype, not just like some sort of presentation that they can show off, but they have this high fidelity prototype. It's already been tested with users twice. They're super excited. They feel super empowered. They're extremely proud that they actually worked on that. Now, within just two weeks, they're able to present back to their colleagues something that they were able to create extremely quickly. That's basically, so step one was training people and getting them on board and getting them excited in a boot camp. Step two was choosing a lighthouse project to work on. Now, choosing that project is sometimes a little bit tricky and sometimes it requires an extra workshop because there's often multiple teams vying to be the first project. Now, the first project is done. The team that worked on it is extremely excited. The rest of it starts to slowly spread virally throughout the organization now. So another team is going to see that and they're going to say, you know what, this lending or insurance thing that I've been trying to figure out for a while, a design sprint would be perfect for that. And so they ask the head of innovation or whatever, hey, can we do a design sprint? And can we do a design sprint? Another department is asking, can they do a design sprint? So instead of it being something like forced upon the teams, forced upon the company, they are seeing other results from other teams and it's starting to spread organically the principles of the design sprint are starting to spread organically and that's the point where you have some sort of momentum where you don't necessarily need to like try to force these things people start to understand the design sprint is something that can be plugged into their current systems dramatically change and improve how they work and now everyone wants to do it now there are a lot of risks of this just starting to lose momentum. Obviously, if there are multiple projects in a row that don't work out well, we've seen that the design sprint process starts to not fail, but the companies start to drop it again. So what we generally try to do is we do this one lighthouse project, we come back and we start training different teams, and we start looking at different lighthouse projects within different large departments, maybe once every four to six months, just to really, really keep up this feeling of, wow, things are moving forward, things are getting exciting. And honestly, within a very short amount of time, it's not that now every single person in the entire company knows how to run a design sprint. But within a relatively short amount of time, maybe it's six months, but in a large company, that's nothing. You start to have a dozen of really kick-ass facilitators who've done multiple sprints, who've, who are really the evangelists of the design sprint. They start to teach other facilitators, and you end up having a lot of facilitators in the company who are able to run these things. In many companies, what happens is that you have like almost like an internal design agency that can be lended out to work on specific projects and run design sprints. And basically, it starts to spread on its own. So that's for us the starting ingredients for scaling up the design sprint process throughout an organization it's not having a huge conference it's not sending out brochures to everybody about the sprint it's really training a small select group of people who are important getting them excited about it choosing a really interesting project to work on that can be public throughout the company to excite people And then demonstrating the power of the sprint with results. So not just talking about that, doing personas can do this and this and this. No, show the results by choosing a project that has been going in circles, that has been difficult, use the design sprint on it. Now publicize that back to the team again. It doesn't have to be publicized to the entire company yet. That's something you can do later. And at this point, you now have way more options to spread this throughout your organization than normally happens when companies try to do these innovation initiatives because people they want to do it they're not being forced to do it and that's the point when at least from our side it starts to get a bit more custom we maybe come in to just do some coaching to coach the facilitators every so often just to make sure they're on the right path but often after one year of working with the client on and off they're able to run their own design sprints and they don't actually need us anymore. So, one of the clients that listens to this podcast, I know, an energy firm from Europe, the biggest one actually. They really don't need us anymore. They only contact us for, you know, when they want an unbiased opinion and want to run a sprint just because they don't have time, but they don't need a company like us to stick around forever and keep making random documents for them. So, they become self-sufficient once this thing kind of kicks off and Also, the design sprint doesn't need to like permeate the entire organization. That's also something that sometimes big companies think like now everyone has to do design thinking. Now everybody has to do this. But, you know, sometimes that's just a little bit too extreme. And um, maybe some departments need to get good at doing things. And maybe not everybody needs to be touched by it. So that's just to give you an idea of how we help companies scale the sprints on a very basic level. If you're ever thinking about doing something like that, that's maybe a good way to start it, you know, start with some training just to get everybody and get everybody excited, and then move on to this lighthouse project, which is extremely important to get right. One final thing is that I have finished the book, The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. And it is fantastic. It's actually a great book for anybody who's just like alive because the lessons in there are universal. But anybody trying to build up their career, anybody maybe trying to start their own business or anybody just, I don't know, who wants something better for themselves in their lives. I think this is a fantastic book to read. Let me give you a tiny bit of a summary of what I like about it. So The Obstacle is the Way. The book is basically about turning adversity, so turning bad things that happen to you into an advantage. And I guess the idea there is that bad things are going to happen no matter what. Unexpected things are going to happen no matter what. How you deal with it kind of determines how successful and how happy you are going to be in your life. One of the big initiatives that we had at AJ and Smart, one of the big projects that I kicked off last September, and I had really huge ideas of how big it was going to be. It was going to be a $5 million New part of the company, and this and this and this. After about four months or five months of running it, I realized that it was not going to work out. It was not the right path that I should have taken. And not only that, I made a lot of mistakes setting it up. I made a lot of very obvious, in hindsight, mistakes just getting the whole thing moving, how I started it, how I communicated it within AJ and Smart. This and that and that and that. And it's not that it was a complete failure. It's just that it didn't really work out the way I hoped it to work out. It caused a lot more stress than I hoped it would. And yeah, people who were involved in that project were super confused and kind of irritated because they didn't know what was going on because I was changing things constantly. And eventually it got to the point in March where I just decided to kind of kill the project. And I was disappointed in it. And I was kind of disappointed in myself or, you know, just not getting it and and whatever. Now I'm coming back to the book, by the way. So that is something that was an obstacle for me. This thing not working out, this uh, team not working out, this project not working out was, you know, was adversity. However, because that happened, it forced me to think about different solutions, different ways that we can go. And because I was forced and like put up against the wall and had to make some decisions and had to act on the problem, we ended up trying something at AJ and Smart that is likely to be much more successful and much more scalable, much better for the business and just overall better in every way than what the original plan was. And this book, The Obstacle is the Way, what it really talks about is being able to take these crappy, shitty events that happen to you and turn them to your advantage. Like, look at what went wrong, accept the failure, and just start moving forward. And I had heard the audiobook of The Obstacle is the Way, and I had some of these ideas in mind. But reading this book again, I really realized that that is a huge, huge advantage. Somebody who can take a failure, accept a failure, and then look for the advantages within that failure. Look for, okay, so that didn't work out. What did I learn from that? How can I move forward? And the obstacle is a way the book goes even further to, okay, what if you're like badly injured? What if something really horrible happens to you? And what if this and what if that? And the book really just breaks down that all of these bad things that bad things are going to happen to you. Many people react in panic or in feeling helpless, or maybe they, when bad things happen to people, they act out instead of acting. That's one of my favorite quotes. So one little great quote I'll read here. Yet we feel like going to pieces when the PowerPoint projector won't work. Instead of throwing it aside and delivering an exciting talk without notes, we stir up gossip with our coworkers. Instead of pounding something productive out on our keyboards, we act out instead of act. Now, how many people do you know when something goes wrong in their lives? And and let's just say something as simple as the PowerPoint. Like how many times have I, I mean, the, the amount of times that I've been at a conference or at a workshop and the projector didn't work and I just had to do it like by talking or showing my laptop. I never get pissed off about that. It never irritates me, even if it is clearly stupid and if the people should have been prepared. Because it doesn't help anybody, right? Something that does irritate me a lot is when people get easily flustered, when people get easily annoyed about things. And I think that it's a huge advantage to be a person who doesn't, a person who does not waver when bad things happen, when annoying things happen. They just keep going and try to figure out a solution. And I think that's also, I mean, I don't want to compliment myself too much here, but it's also one of the qualities that I realize reading this book that I somehow naturally have, I don't panic, I don't feel stressed when something doesn't go to plan. If a flight is late, or if I completely miss it, I don't go into panic and anger mode, I go into, okay, how can I solve it mode. And many times I'm in a room of people, when something has gone wrong, everyone's freaking out or angry. And I'm just trying to figure out, okay, that didn't work out. Okay, let's see what the next thing we can do is. And that's step one that you kind of learn from this book. And step two is really, how do you turn the obstacle around? How do you turn the situation around and turn it to your advantage? And one of the ways you can turn something bad to your advantage is that many other people will panic. Whereas if you're able to understand that these situations happen anyway, then you don't need to be the person who panics. There's a whole chapter called, prepare for none of it to work. That's, for me, a fantastic chapter that would have been great to read before I started off that project that didn't really work out. Prepare for none of it to work is a great way to think because you won't be disappointed if it doesn't work and you'll just keep moving forward and trying to solve it if you know that there's a very good chance that it doesn't work. There's so many, so many other things in here that are really, really great. I'm just trying to look for a fantastic quote. Here's another good one. Pragmatism is not so much realism as flexibility. There are a lot of ways to get from point A to point B. It doesn't have to be a straight line. It's just got to get you to where you need to go. But so many of us spend so much time looking for the perfect solution that we pass up what's right in front of us. And I think that's another really important thing that a lot of people just slow themselves down because number one, they they kind of list out all the disadvantages they have. Oh, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, but you know, I own, I'm only one person and, you know, people that won't take me seriously and this and that and that. You know what? I started AJ and Smart, this now multi-million dollar company. I started it without having ever worked in a design agency. I didn't know how to run a business. I didn't know how to run a design agency. I didn't even know how to run a business. So you don't need to kind of whine about your disadvantages, you know, about how to get from A to B if you've got this disadvantage. It's just all about being clever, all about ignoring the fact that you have a disadvantage of just going for it. I think a lot of people that I meet who are successful, they generally just don't complain, you know, they don't complain about their situations, they don't complain about things going wrong, they take it in their stride they just do things, they just get things done, and they do not complain. Whereas a lot of other people I know who are dissatisfied about their life choices and careers, they generally blame it on somebody else. They generally, they like to gossip about how other people let them down and how someone owes them $200 and that's why they can't do it, or their boss is an asshole, or the bus was late or whatever it was. I think that it's easier to complain about the bad things that are happening to you than actually do the work. So yeah, a little bit of a ramble. Definitely think that people should check out The Obstacle is the Way. I think really great life lessons in there. I know I kind of destroyed the review. I'd give it five out of five, though. I talked about it last week as well, but now I actually got to the end of it. Really just excellent book. One of my favorite chapters is about how astronauts are trained for pretty much everything to go wrong. And they have to like stay extremely calm. Because if they go into a reactionary mode, when something bad is happening, they might, you know, accidentally (laughs) eject out into space and die. So they practice for things to go wrong they assume things could go wrong and their goal is to keep their heart rate down as low as possible when things are going badly so they can think clearly so they can move forward so they can save themselves and that's something that the book teaches is that if something is going bad in your life if you got fired if someone <laughs> broke up with you if your boss is an asshole if you've been having health issues these are things that just happen. And how you deal with it is in the end kind of something that you actually have the choice. So you don't have the choice about what happened, but you have the choice of how you deal with it. Yeah, that got a bit too deep there. I'm sorry about that. I hope you have a lovely week. And the next episode should have myself and Jake in front of a live audience. Let's, like I said, the audio might be a disaster. But have a really lovely week. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. Like I said, if you enjoy the podcast, if you enjoy listening to this every week, the ramblings of uh, Jonathan and Jake, do give it a five-star rating in the iTunes store, the podcast app. And if you can't do that, or even if you can, uh, we'd also love if you shared it or chatted about it on the Twitter. Okay, so I guess that's it. Have a lovely, 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 beautiful week. (laughs) Okay, Alexa just started responding to me there while I was saying that. Goodbye, everybody.